0: Well, good morning, and uh, thank you, John, for this great opportunity to come and share uh, with you something of the Scriptures. <coughs> and to share a, a portion of the Scriptures has been a significant part in turning my life upside down. And how, in the last uh, 20, 30 years, this has been an important part of how we sought to be obedient to the Scriptures. I just want to encourage you. Uh, it's, it's such a joy to come amongst a church where there's a real sense of family. You know, I, clearly, you have fun together, and clearly, you, you have a, there's a real sense of family. I think that's fantastic, and I just want to encourage you uh, to carry on being family. If you have your Bible, I just want to read a few, uh, pas- a small passage of scripture uh, together with you. <clears throat> this is in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no poor among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Before I became a Christian, I was really attracted by this whole vision of this early church, living together as a family, living together in community, where they had all things in common, except their wives, didn't share their wives. We lived in community for eight years, and we shared all things in common except our wives and our books. (laughs) Never loan books to Christians, right? They never come back. I was really attracted to this, and I thought, if this is Christianity, I'll sign up for it. I'll sign up for it. Sadly, we didn't see much of all that, and sadly we've had to go about creating community and, and, and economic sharing. But this is this was not an unusual community throughout history. For hundreds of years, there were pockets of Christian groups scattered all over the Mediterranean who practiced this, economic sharing, sharing of goods. So where did all this come from? Well, this has come from the Old Testament. You see, when God took the nation of Israel into the promised land, he gave them three major programs to help them become a more just community, more just society. And the first program is what is called the three-year program. Every three years, God required his people to take 10% of what they own, bring it into the town hall, and then invite the poor, the orphans, the foreigners, the widows, to come and take what they needed. Wow! If If once every three years... We cleared up this hall and invited Londis to contribute 10% of what they owned. Marks and Spencer's, probably not around here, right? Tesco's, Asda, 10%. And we brought 10% of what we owned to the hall. And we lift all our neighbors. Right? Come. If you have any needs, come and take according to your needs. That was the vision that God gave to the nation. So that there would be no poor among you. You see? Foreigner, widow with nobody to look after you. Here's your opportunity. And then there was another program. It's called the Sabbath year program, the seventh year program. Every seventh year, God required the nation to do three things. First, proclaim a year's holiday. Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. Why? Because God says this. Have a year's holiday so that you do not exploit your servants, your slaves, your land, and your animals. Why? Because you don't own anything on this earth. You're stewards. We need to start learning to live like we are stewards. We need to start learning on this earth to live as if we are guests in somebody's house. We're guests in God's house. Here on earth. Do not exploit the land. Don't rape the land. Don't exploit the animals. Don't exploit your servants and your workers. Give them a year's holiday. But dangers of sharing this in the school context because I remember doing this many, many years ago in Malaysia. And a bunch of, I was speaking to a large group of young people. And boy, did they take that message up to their parents. <laughs> you know what the Bible says? we've got to have a year's holiday every seven years. <coughs> in the Bible. The second thing that God required was release all slaves. Why? Because you didn't enjoy being slaves in Egypt. Did you? No. Set the captives free. Our faith at heart It's about setting the captives free. Free from sin. Free from illness. Free from oppression. It's a liberating faith that we have. That's our gospel. Set the captives free. Let my people go. Third thing, cancel all debts. Every seventh year, we are supposed to go to our bank manager and say, do you know what year this is? Do you know what the Bible says? You're to cancel all debts. Why? Because God says, your debts against me have been canceled. Therefore, go now and cancel the debts that others owe you. Isn't that amazing? You know, recipients of God's grace have got now to show grace to others. You know, there can be no grace in our lives from God if we don't show grace to others. Cancel all debts. What an amazing society God was after. You see, he was after a society that was going to show a sense of justice. He was after a society in which there would be no poor, where we would care for one another. And he made provisions, even for the animals. Don't work your animals. Don't exploit the land. Don't rape the land. That's our kind of God. Well, there's more. There's a third program. Every 50th year, there was what is called the Jubilee Program. And on this 50th year, God required the nation to do four things. First was, have another year's holiday. <laughs> you know, 49th year is a seventh year. Seven times seven for those of you who didn't do your mathematics, right? Seven times seven is 49. Yes? So the 49th year is... Uh, Sabbath year, so you have a year's holiday. And then the 50th year is the Jubilee year. So it's two years' holiday you get. That's something. (coughs) Secondly, cancel all debts. Thirdly, release all slaves. And then fourthly, and here's the real double whammy or triple whammy, release or return all the properties that you've bought in the 49 years to the original owners. Ouch! You know that house you bought? Well, actually, house didn't count. You could you you could keep the houses you bought in town, but it's the farms. It's all the farms that you bought. See, what happened is this. When God gave the land to the nation, He had decided that everyone should have their own plot of land. Everyone started out with their own plot. Everyone had an, a fairly equal plot of land. It was divided according to the size of the tribes. That was the land, nation. It was divided according to the size of the tribes. And then it was just, uh, divided according to the size of the clan and then the size of the family. And each family started out in the promised land with ownership of a farm. And on this farm, you built your house and you farm the land to provide for your families. But unfortunately, some have better land than others. And if you happen to have a whole lot of rocks, you're going to struggle. And then there are accidents. And then there's famine. There are droughts. And then people overconsume. And it's the overconsumption that then leads us into debt. And when you get into debt, you have to sell your land, and when you sell land, what do you do? You migrate into towns, and you migrate into towns, then towns begin to form, and urbanization starts. And that's still what's happening today. Urbanization is still going on around the world. People are more and more attracted into the big cities, and they're leaving all the rural areas. And what God was saying is this. That he wanted a society. He wanted a people in which there was going to be justice. So that every 50th year, through the Jubilee provision, we would all start on the same level all over again. So that the rich do not get richer and richer and richer, and the poor get poorer and poorer and poorer. That is our God. That's the heart of our God. A passion for justice. Wow, wonderful programs. If David Cameron was to stand up today and say, this is going to be my election manifesto for the next election, we'll all vote for him, wouldn't we? I don't think any politician, irrespective of their colors, are ever going to stand up and say, vote for me because if you vote for me, there will be no poverty in the country. But that's what God had promised. If you will obey what I'm asking of you, there will be no poor among you. The tragedy of it is that the nation of Israel never carried out any of these programs. Never. Why? Because it is just so darn difficult. (laughs) Because we are so attached to our materialism. Because essentially we are selfish. Can't do it. Can't do it. How can I I leave my field for a year without working it? How am I going to live? What am I going to live on? All those answers are there in the Bible. Go read Deuteronomy. Go read Leviticus. God anticipates all these questions. Ah, Well, if we don't work for a year, how are we going to live? Don't worry, God provides for it. God provides in the scriptures. Never obeyed, never carried out. Why? Because it was just too difficult, too costly, way too costly. Until the day of Pentecost. Until the Holy Spirit descended on the church, this was never ever practice. What we're reading here in Acts chapter 4 is really the fulfillment of all these programs in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, if you will obey me, there was a, there was a promise there, there would be no poor. Among you. Go check it out Deuteronomy chapter fifteen. That was God's promise. It was never ever fulfilled until we get to Acts chapter four. Here we read they shared all things in common, and there were no poor among them. Why? Because it's just too difficult to share in this kind of way. It's, it wasn't until the coming of the Holy Spirit that this became possible. I know you're a charismatic church. That's good. But you know what? When we read Acts chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, from a very Pentecostal lens, we think in terms of the gifts of the Spirit as being the sign of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that's right. It's not wrong with that, but that's not complete. That's not the complete picture. Because here, in Acts chapter 4, finally through these words, this is the real sign of the Holy Spirit. This is the true sign that the church is full of the Holy Spirit. When they love one another so much that there would be no poor among them. Think of Pentecost as a big, tall mountain, a very tall mountain. My geography is terrible in terms of the geography of Europe, so I don't know what tallest mountains are around here. But think of it as a really high mountain. Because the formation of the church in Acts chapter 2 is, one of the, is, is the highlight, one of the great pinnacles of the story of the Bible. Right? This is, this is a, a, a real pinnacle. So we are right here on a on mountaintop here in Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4. Church being formed, coming of the Holy Spirit, right here. When we understand Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4 purely from the gifts of the Spirit, purely from a Pentecostal lens, all we're doing is standing on a little hill <laughs> looking up at this great mountain. Now you see a little bit. If you're on a little hill and you're looking at this mountain, you will see a little bit and understand a little of what's up there. That's essentially what we have been taught. And it's right. You know, Peter quoted the prophet Joel to understand what was happening on the day of Pentecost. Right? But Joel is a little hill looking up at this great mountain. The real place to look and understand Acts chapter 2 is not the, this little hill of Joel, the prophet Joel. The real place to understand this event, this amazing event the pouring of pouring out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, is actually in Exodus, another high point in the scriptures. When the law was given to Moses, those are the two. High peaks that we have in the Bible. And when you stand on this mountain here in Exodus and look at this mountain here in Acts 2, you will get a very different perspective. Because to this day, the day of Pentecost is celebrated by the Jews as the day in which the law was given. So just as God had given the law to Moses in the Old Testament, in Exodus, so now he gives us the law of the Spirit in the New Testament on the day of Pentecost. And those are the two parallel events. And when you understand that, Acts chapter 2 starts to look very different. If that's how we're to understand Acts from the perspective of Exodus, Acts becomes very different. Acts is not just about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Acts is not just about signs and wonders. Acts is about this amazing pouring out of the Spirit of God so much that suddenly it touches their pockets. Touches their checkbooks. You know, it, 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 it touches the deepest part of them and they start to Overflow. You see, this is what happens when you pour water in the teapot, right? You know, you pour it in, and then it overflows, because you're just receiving so much of God. It has to flow out of us. Believers were together. Day by day, they went from house to house, breaking bread, Scripture tells us. Don't think of it as having communion. Breaking bread is just having meals together. The great thing about the early church was that they were forever eating and drinking. Uh, you know, every time you look at them, they're eating and drinking. In fact, the whole of the Bible is about eating and drinking. Isn't it? You know, Genesis, you start, what happens there? Don't eat this, but eat that. Right? Every time you look at Abram, he's, he's having a meal. And all the way through the Bible. Leviticus. What's Leviticus about? Leviticus is about eating and drinking. It's the best book to read in the summer when you're having your barbecues. Because you can almost smell the barbecues as you read Leviticus. (laughs) It's about eating and drinking. And you know why Leviticus is fantastic? Because the only source of meat during those times in the wilderness was during these festival times. And that's why there's so much eating and drinking and all these sacrifices. You think God's really that interested in his sacrifices? Of course not. But it's through the sacrifices that the people will get meat and get their cakes and be fed. And when we look at our Lord Jesus, what is he doing all the time? Eating and drinking with the wrong people. Right? And the early church... Day after day, they are going from house to house, eating and drinking. And what is the last page in the Bible about? Revelation. The last supper. More eating and drinking at the end. Our faith is about eating and drinking. So that there will be no poor amongst you. Shouldn't be anyone who is going to go hungry. Should be no poor amongst you. You know, we 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 should really take some of these things a bit more in 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 the context of what is happening to our economies. We've got we've had stories today of people who've been made redundant. And thankfully, you know, by God's grace, they've been given new jobs. But what about outside of our community here? We've got a lot of Poverty knocking around now. This credit crunch is gonna be with us for a long time. You know, this form of capitalism isn't working. It hasn't worked for a long while. It's just that nobody has blown the whistle on it. We're gonna be affected for a long time. How then should we as the church respond to this? Is there something jubilee that we can do? As a church, is there an opportunity for us to go and leaflet all our neighbours and say, once every month or once every three months, we're going to have a storehouse, and, and, and we're going to bring, you know, food and clothes and whatever. Come and take what you need. You know, the most there are two important rooms in the early church as this when they started becoming. Uh, more formal and started instead of meeting in houses or by the riverside, which is where the early church met, when they started build, started meeting in buildings. There were two rooms that were really important. One was obviously uh, the, the the sanctuary area where they, they, they worshipped, right? Yeah, in fact, there were three rooms. There was the sanctuary, and then there was a the second room, which is where the baptistry was going to be, and it was a separate. The baptistry was separate to the main uh, auditorium. Why? because for a long time in the early church, they baptized you naked. Interesting? Right? So that's why you had to be in a separate room. But there was always a third room, a third area, and it was called the storehouse. And the reason for calling it a storehouse was this. Remember, the early centuries, most of the Christians were persecuted slaves. They were poor. We were a minority. We were a persecuted faith. We were an, an illegal faith. You could not meet legally. So, the cover of darkness, they would come, and guess what? There will be a bouncer at the door, just very much like your steward that I saw this morning. Big, burly guy. Gary, where are you? <laughs> there you are. There will be several Garys at the door. Right? And as you came in, Gary would say, what do you want? (laughs) None of this seeker-friendly stuff. Okay? What do you want? Who sent you? Why? Because it was an illegal faith. They were meeting in secret. Right? So you had to have bounces at the door. And if you allowed in, then, then you brought some, brought an offering, and in the early years, the offering was not money. The offering was whatever little you had. Could be oil, could be water. In fact, the poor, the poorest of poor, brought water so that it could be diluted with wine so that they could have their communion together, their Eucharist. Even the poor brought something: the water event and then some food later on clothes and shoes but all that was collected up by the leaders of the church and put in the storehouse and then the offering would then be distributed to those in need especially those widows who've had their husbands sent to prison because of their faith storehouse. It was really the most important part almost of the church. And out of that they invited the poor come and take what you need. Is there an opportunity for us given the kind of needs that we have around us for a storehouse? Think of the impact that this would have. Here you are, you're knocking on a door and you say, first thing, no, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. Relax. <laughs> right? Relax. I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. What do you want, man? Well, you know, we're a kind of strange church. And, and, and on this certain day, we've got, we've got a storehouse. And it's got food. It's got clothes. It's got whatever. And we just want to invite you to come and take what you need you're pulling my leg. You can't be serious. You must be joking. No, no. It's true. Why? Why are you doing this? Because we love you. Because we are a community. Because we are a family. See, one of the great things that happened uh, when... On a year of Jubilee, you return the land back to the original owners is this. You've been you've you sold your land. And by the way, the Jews in, in, in our Bible, there's no word for nuclear family. You know, mom and dad, and, and well these days, you know, it's not even mom and dad. Yeah, two and a half, two and a half or two and a quarter kids, um, cat and the dog or television. There's no word for nuclear family. The word family that we have here is always the extended family. It's what sociologists call the 3G family, three-generation family. And on average, the size of a family during the time of the Old Testament would be around 30 to 40 people. That's the family. That's the family. So you'd be brought up with uncles and aunts and cousins and so on all the things that we had in rural England many, many years ago, which we've lost, which the breakup of our families and our society and our communities. And so you, you, you had to sell the land because you're in debt. So what happens? You then migrate into the towns. Then come the year of Jubilee the sounding of the ram's horn. On that day when the ram's horn sounds, and it's on the day of atonement, by the way. The day in which God and man are at one again is the day that the ram's horn is blown, and you're free. You're free to go back to your own land, on your own farm. And as you walk back towards your farm, guess what? Oh, that's cousin so-and-so. I haven't seen him for 40 years. There is uh, another cousin there. There's an uncle so-and-so I haven't seen for 40 years. And you come back into your original farm, and you rediscover family. You rediscover family. You rediscover community. That's what the early church discovered. Through the coming of the Holy Spirit, These were people who had come from all countries around the Mediterranean. Some of them didn't speak, you know, a common language. This was the feast of the Passover, and they all came on a pilgrimage from many different countries. They didn't know each other. They were all strangers. But through the coming of the Holy Spirit, they rediscovered what it meant to be family irrespective of which nation they've come from, they were family. And what do families do? Families eat together, drink together, share together, cry together, laugh together. That's what families do. And so this amazing scene here in Acts was repeated for at least 200 years in different parts of the Mediterranean, in churches around the Mediterranean. And then it got lost. We need to rediscover this because this is authentic Christianity. This is true faith. I'm not belittling the spiritual gifts or healing and prophecy and so on. We need all that. But for me, the true sign of the Holy Spirit coming upon a church is generosity. Extravagant, extraordinary generosity. Why? Because they've experienced the generosity of God's grace in their own lives. Can't help but be generous to others now. Because God's been so generous to you, right? Can't help but be generous to others. There's another sign for me of what I think is a true sign when the Holy Spirit comes upon His people: courage, boldness. You know, these were timid guys who were neat, who were hiding away in the upper room, right? But as soon as they got hit by the Holy Spirit. Guess what? There's a boldness about them. Now they're outside, they're proclaiming the faith and living their faith. The real signs for me of the Holy Spirit are coming upon his people. Boldness, extravagant generosity. <laughs> Those are the signs. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, here you are, a foreigner. Whom the apostles called Barnabas, the son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. <laughs> Don't feel sorry for Barnabas. He's got plenty of other fields as well. Now, this is not God condemning people and saying, you must. You know, that's the great thing about our faith. It's a voluntary faith. It's not a you must. But Barnabas was so moved by, you know, the spirit of God upon his life that he and seeing the poverty of this new family of his now sold this field that he had and brought the money to the leaders and say use it and share it with my family so that there will be no poor among us Isn't that an exciting vision for a church you know, I think if we had a little bit more of this, even the world might say, hey, that's attractive. The reason why the church is no longer attractive is because the church no longer has what I call a wow factor. You know, there was a bit of, there is a wow factor here. I walked in, I thought, wow. Yeah, there's a, there's a real sense of family here. You know, There's a real sense of bond between you. Right? I love that. And you can smell it. Really, you can smell it, can't you? You know, it, it's, it's really important to uh, smell the faith. You know, we, Paul talks about us, you know, being fragrance, giving out this fragrance of Christ. There is a smell about you. Good smell. <laughs> good smell. You smell good this morning. And you smell good to God, too. You know, this aroma that is going up to God. God is pleased with this smell. Right? Because there is this sense of family. I know that you love one another. I know that you will stand with one another. I know that you will share with one another. Well, here's the challenge. We need to do more. We need to share more we need to now to share with the community outside. Because there's a lot of hurt out there, a lot of pain out there. There's a lot of uh, poverty out there, growing poverty out there. So how are we going to respond? So friends, great pleasure being with you. Great pleasure to share something of uh, what has been a, a really important part of my understanding of Christianity. Um, and, and has motivated us to live differently, to hold our material things lightly. We're stewards. I don't own any of this. you know. And, 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 and it's for sharing. It's for sharing. So how, I pray, uh, that by the Spirit of God, as you individually and together, more importantly, collectively as a church, that you'll find ways... Of sharing this gospel, this wonderful gospel, liberating people, setting people free in this area. So that next time we meet, there'll be lots, lots more people who've been touched by the love of God in very practical ways. You see, love has to be seen. Has to be seen. It's not enough to say, I love you. (laughs) Love has to be seen. It has to be practical. Similarly, unity has to be seen. How do we know that there is one heart, one soul, one mind here? Well, you've got to see it. And you see it through the sharing. You know. And that's why the early Christians, you see, they were described as people who loved one another. See how they love one another. It was through the practical sharing. Because you don't share with strangers like this. You don't share with prisoners like this. You don't share with slaves. Well, God does. And his people do. You know, at one stage, the Christians were feeding so many people that the, emperor, the Roman emperor was so upset. He says, these wretched Galileans, not only are they feeding their own poor, now they're feeding our poor as well. He's surprised that 50% of the population... No Roman Empire became Christians? Shouldn't surprise you. Should it? You go out and stop living this kind of faith? Shouldn't surprise you. It's what attracts people to God. It's the people of God living this out in faith. So, my prayer for you is given the tough economic times that we're going to be in, may you Hear God giving us creative ideas, imaginative plans and visions and programs to go and show God's love to the community. Let's show David Cameron what big society really means. It's not about big society. It's about big families. It's about families. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the coming of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Fill us anew, we pray. Pour out your Spirit upon us, Lord, today, in a new way. Strengthen us. Envision us. Give us boldness encourage, and, and above all, Lord, give us the ability to show the generosity to others as you've shown generosity to us. We thank you for your mercy in our lives today. Help us now to show mercy to others around us. So, Lord, by your grace, we pray, build your church. May your kingdom come among us on earth as it is in heaven. And that all who see may give glory to the Father. Amen. Amen. Thank you and God bless you.